And he said, if Rai is an artist, she'll come and find you someday because she's going to question her life and her reality. And in some ways they were right. Greetings, salutations, and welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what's going on right now. I'm Adrian Dobb. I'm Laura Good. I'm so glad I've sucked you into this, like, I don't know, Lewis Carroll greeting and repeating the greeting. And, you know, I, I, yeah. I appreciate my yeah. influence on your speech. Yeah, we're like, we're, like fi- <laughs> we're like five words in and we're already halfway through the looking glass, you know? <laughs> Exactly. General check-in. How are things? Like, what's where are you in 2022? I mean, I think it's a line from uh, Succession. Uh, shit show at the fuck factory. Yeah, oh, that's um, such a good episode. Fuck, like that's that's 2022 in a nutshell. I have to say. Um, <laughs> put it this way: How am I doing? I had a, a day last week where I started my first lecture at 7 a.m. I did a TV spot. I did two more lectures at Stanford. And at 5.30, I I went to a brief uh, social thing. At the end of it, the colleague said, oh, well, I hope you're enjoying your leave. And I just, I... I, It took everything not to just kind of collapse and cry. I'm like, are you... What? Like, this is like, it's like... uh, Yeah, I... Hold up. Are you still technically on leave? I'm not. I'm okay, not, I was no, like, I'm not whoa, on leave. Whoa. Like I'm as far as you can be from leave. That is evident to me. I suppose it's kind of the it's you know it might be some slight narcissism that if they haven't seen me it must be because I'm on leave. But it just to me was like wow this is uh, this is exactly it that like you know you finish fourteen hour work days and then like people are like well I hope you're getting a lot of rest and like you know our employer keeps being like earn some points by doing yoga and I'm like <laughs> yeah uh, sure doing my ample half hours that I'm given, I will definitely, you know, I haven't had lunch uh, for like, <laughs> the last 5.30 two weeks. PM, like, yeah. <laughs> sh- it's like, sure, let me, like my lunch yesterday was an eclair that was left, I think from the meeting before. And I was like, oh, screw it, I'm taking it. You're the skinniest person I know on an all chocolate diet, but go on. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, have you considered meditation? It's like, have I considered it? Fucker, of course I've considered it. And <laughs> Anyway, so that's that's a very long answer to the short question of how I am. Oh my god. I mean, reasonable. Like, I have so many questions. I mean, who thought you were still on leave? I mean, honestly, seeing how it, like I did not really have a lot of fantasies of ever having a third child, but like I will say I noticed how compelling the Stanford maternity leave package, you know, at least looks from the outside. Yeah. But it was nothing so much as seeing how your leave went that really eliminated any optimism in that spark for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to say how much of that is COVID, but it's it's worth thinking about. Yeah. I mean, I literally received an email from the hospital where I was, you know, staying with my newborn daughter that, quote, it would be really good to have you in the Zoom meeting and if I wouldn't mind zooming in. Right. Uh, she was at that point seven hours old. Seven hours old. And yeah, so that was my leave. Uh, was I guess the hours between one a.m. and eight a.m. on her birthday. Oh my god! For an industry in which there are like verifiably no real 
well, I shouldn't say no real emergencies, certainly fewer real emergencies than many other industries. No, yeah. you're absolutely right. I don't remember exactly what it was. There was a deadline, but it was self-imposed. You know, we weren't going to lose federal funding, anything like that. And I should mention that, of course, at a research institute like Clayman, uh, we do have, you know, federal deadlines and that kind of thing. Sure. It wasn't a Clayman meeting is the thing. No, Clayman would never call you seven hours into your paternity leave. Yeah. Clayman respects these things. We would never. So I want to make that very clear. I feel like now would be a good moment for a primer on like, Professor Daub, what is the Stanford duck? Can, can you describe that metaphor real quick? <laughs> yeah, the Stanford duck, I believe, is usually only used in connections to undergraduates specifically. Oh, I have never observed that delineation. I have found that it applies very, very handily to many groups of the population. But go on. Um, well, it's it refers to the attempt or the social code by which... Everyone is paddling furiously below the waterline, but pretending to be absolutely calm on the surface. Mm -hmm. The thing is, I think faculty are not pretending to be calm on the surface. It's just no one gives a shit whether or not we're we're flipping out. All right, maybe that's how people understand it. But like, when my superiors see me on the quad and and they say, "How are you doing?" They're getting a very similar speech to the one I just gave. Uh, So I'm not. (laughs) I'm paddling. I'm paddling top and bottom here. Um, And they're like, "Oh, that's nice." Um, Shows you for for choosing this career that combines all the job protections of, you know, a medieval university with with modern technology. So what could possibly go wrong? Serves you right for loving knowledge and wanting to share it with others, honestly. Hi. Well, um, speaking of knowledge, we're... we're, um, Speaking of knowledge... (laughs) We're obviously we're not we're not here to vent. Speak Uh, for yourself, but sure. Yeah. We have, I feel like you haven't gotten to vent at all. I um, haven't. I was really enjoying, like, I mean, not enjoying your, like, cortisol levels, <laughs> but I was enjoying checking in with you, and I was going to build a segue that was more about parenthood than work, but I like your work one. Yes, I mean, I was please. thinking... No, let's do that. Well, I was thinking your daughter has made a few sort of informal debuts on the podcast through she some has, errant has. noises, etc., but we haven't really talked about the fact that you have gone through a parenthood process, and... Uh, you know, that's had some impacts on your life, it sounds like, <laughs> as they tend to do. It's true. It's true. And yeah, our, our daughter was born in 2021, a uh, COVID baby. She's perfect. Um, and she is amazing. And let's put it this way. Watching today's guest's film mm-hmm. was basically a trigger from minute one. Uh, I just, you know, I was just, I, I, I mean, I think it's a very well-made documentary. There'll be parts of it that you'll find very enjoyable, but... If you're in my specific situation, you probably, you know, want to find, before you watch it, find a shirt to sweat through all the way. Because it's just that stressful. Yeah. I was recommending it to the people I call my lesbian moms, who are my neighbors across the street, who adopted me at age 30 when I had a kid of my own and really needed some support and really still needed moms in ways that I didn't think I would still need moms at age 30. But man, man, how I did. I was recommending this documentary, Nuclear Family, to them. And the way I recommended it is I was like, look, this would be unwatchable if, like, the family hadn't won this court case. But, like, let me let me spoil it for you. There's a happy ending, and it's, like, a very wonderful happy ending. But you're right. It's a really 
it's suspenseful in the most sort of like gut grinding way. And what we're talking yeah. about is the docuseries Nuclear Family by the filmmaker Rai Russo Young. And you'll hear plenty about it in the interview, but like in very short, broad strokes, the docuseries is about Rai's families. Rai has lesbian moms, and it was about her family's experience being sued for paternity by the sperm donor who helped conceive her. And this was a court case that dragged on for, I think, like four years from yeah. something like the time Rye was nine to 13 or something. Excuse me if I got that like a year wrong in either direction, but like a prolonged court struggle at a transformative time of adolescence and identity yeah. formation and all of these things. And then kind of a an aftermath too, because like she also yes. uses footage of herself totally. from a 1999 documentary where she's 16, I guess. So, you know, as tends to be the case with spectacular court cases, it kind of, you know, even once the decision was made, it kind of dominated her life, it seems, at least for another few years. Yeah. Yeah. Very much continued to affect her family. And you'll hear Rye talk about how this is a story she's been trying to tell and in some ways has been telling for 20 years. You know, I want to zoom out a little bit because we were so focused on nuclear family in our discussion with Rye that we didn't get into her other work. That's a good point. But I do want to contextualize that Rye Russo Young is like extremely cool. And <laughs> I feel like our intro is often that space that I use to detail the specific ways in which I am intimidated by each guest. The specific way in which I am totally intimidated by Rai is just like her downtown coolness. Like I met her in my New York years. Shout out to the poet Sarah Feminella, who's one of Rai's best friends from high school and college and a grad school friend of mine who introduced us. But like Rai is an actress. Rai is a director who's made several other like big deal movies. I remember fucking donating to her Kickstarter campaign in like 20, 2008 or something for her first film, You Won't Miss Me, which debuted at South by Southwest. Like Rai has been on the scene in some very cool ways for a long time. And I highly recommend her other filmmaking work too. But Nuclear Family just seemed like the story she was... Ah, it's, oh, it feels very complicated to call it the story she was born to tell in context. I'm going to cut myself off there, but it is a story that is so intrinsically hers yeah. and could not be yeah. told by anybody else. Yeah. And a story that has immensely helped I mean, on a very, very pedestrian level by the fact that she's clearly had an interest in filmmaking from a very early age. Totally. And this is not being narrated to you. Part of what's so moving about it is that you're watching these people go through it, that, that there are wonderful interviews, skillful interviews with her mom's, uh, but that there's also mm -hmm. footage, sort of found footage and footage from the family at the time. And through it, that all these characters become extremely um, relatable and extremely... Oh, there's River now. Uh, I hear her now! Yay! <laughs> yeah, become extremely kind of vivid. Totally. Including, I should say, the person who's, I think, would say the clear villain of the piece, which is the, the sperm donor. Totally. And especially the, the moms have a, a just an amazing screen presence from the very first. I mean, it's like, can you describe your relationship to Rai? You mean you? <laughs> like, they're just like having, yeah. they're having like none of her shit. Why are you referring to yourself as a third, third person? Like it has no, <laughs> it's, it takes no shit uh, at, at any time. And it's, it's fantastic. It's so fantastic. You know, what you're saying is reminding me of one of the qualities of the series that I loved so much, which is like, it's feminism is so not heavy handed, yeah. but it weaves through every scene because this is as much a story of a court case as it is a sort of 
portrait of the artist as a young filmmaker yeah, and portrait yeah. of the becoming of a, of a brilliant artist of in some ways a prodigy and then as you say we see her these characters of her mothers who are also legit verified feminist heroines who are both incredibly supportive of their daughter's you know pursuit of art and very much still her family not letting her get too big ahead about it it's just incredibly charming so listen we have rambled enough. Direct yourselves to HBO yeah. if you have the privilege of an HBO login or someone else's HBO login. <laughs> Run, don't walk to watch the three-part Nuclear Family docuseries by the filmmaker Rai Russo-Young. And please enjoy our discussion with Rai herself, who was gracious enough to share some time with us. Enjoy. Rye, hello. I have now watched Nuclear Family twice in fall. Like I watched it the second it came out because I was so excited about it. And then I rewatched it in advance of this interview, partially because I wasn't confident that I could keep there's so many twists and turns and details that I was like not confident I could keep it all straight for something I had watched several months ago. So I guess the first twist and turn I would love to talk about is like your moms are both feminist heroines to whom every queer parent, including the two on this podcast, like owe a debt of gratitude for their courage and precedent setting. And they are also your moms, right? Like they're your parents. And like that, I felt the tension of that duality throughout this film. So I guess my first question is like, how was it for you to construct your parents as characters? Like I could add more detail to that, but I want to just like throw that out in an open-ended way to start. Okay. Well, first, thank you for having me. Yes. Really appreciate it. Fun to be here. Okay. So part of what was challenging was that growing up being one of the first in the first wave of gay families, sure. Um, my sister and I felt an enormous pressure to represent our kind and therefore sort of to be perfect and to be a representation that lesbian families are healthy and normal. That was actually like something that we felt like we had to prove to the world because the world was actually at the time still saying that the children of gay people were sick. Like that was actually what was going on in the culture. So we had a lot to prove. So, and I never, you know, even though culture has now caught up and that's not what people are saying, that sort of, for lack of a better word, trauma has always been ingrained. So then making my moms both, you know, sort of having them be my parents and the complexity um, of their own humanity and their own challenges mixed with everything that we went through, that was kind of ultimately the challenge. So I still had these instincts to protect them. Of course. Even in the making of the movie. How could you not? They had been through so much, you know? How could you totally. not have that impulse? Totally. And part of, I think, why it took so long to make the film and part of the making of the film is is those sort of warring instincts of wanting to just get messy and dirty and understand what was going on, but also 
still protect them in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the really interesting thing, right? That it creeps in sort of from the margins that in some way there was this kind of cultural pressure and this need to represent normalcy. But for that, the film has such comfort with with mm-hmm. the messiness of it. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of moments when sort of an easy interpretation is suggested and almost automatically the film kind of goes back and sort of, oh, maybe it was more complicated than that. For me, that was an extremely moving kind of juxtaposition. The fact that messiness costs more when you're, you know, in an unusual kind of family. And yet that this film is all the more invested in being alive to the messiness and being okay with the messiness. Absolutely, because the messiness is every family. Right. And I knew that if the more honest we were and the more open we were about our family and all of its dimensions and vulnerabilities and tentacles, the more that people would actually relate to it in some way. I mean, there's a limit that this hits, right? In the sense that the central, I'd say, decision that centers the story, right, is one that is ultimately kind of incomprehensible, right? I mean, like there is, you know, the moment when your mom gets served with papers, it really feels like, oh, wow. Like that's, you know, I'm guessing that the title also alludes to that, that someone has really just like launched a nuke in the middle of this family. Well, how did that sort of present a challenge that like in the middle of all this very recognizable mm-hmm. messiness that's ultimately so humanizing, there is this one choice where you're like, like, I mean, I think you do as good a job as one can contextualizing it but still you're like you keep coming back to it you're saying and you're like oh no you know this is this feels this feels so extreme Mm -hmm. was that difficult to reconcile or did you did you feel like no once you have enough messiness it's like uh it, it kind of is part of that i mean there wouldn't be a movie if there wasn't a lawsuit so there wasn't you know the choice for him to sue was sort of what made the story extraordinary on one level on a very, you know, that's the source of conflict. So in a way, the more challenging part was actually to have an hour where we get to that moment. Yes. You know, in a lot of films Mm -hmm. more conventionally, if you were doing this narratively, you'd want to start with that moment because that is the actual point. That is sort of the biggest point of conflict when he sues. But I, felt like you you really couldn't have that moment mean anything unless you earned how Robin and Russo fought so hard to create this family. Exactly. Yes. And yes. what informed the their choices in making this family. Yes. So we really had to start, I mean that's one of the things about the film is the chronological approach. We really had to start mm-hmm. at the very beginning and track them yeah. as characters and track how they ch- made these choices along the way and how careful they were in making these choices. Well, it's also, I mean, it's a great film about family, but it's also a great film about community because, of course, the choices do not just involve the people involved in making you. Yes. They're also, some of your interview subjects are extremely crestfallen about, you know, having in some way helped set this in motion and, you know, and the utter kind of bafflement at the way it then kind of turns out, uh, especially in the second episode, I think that also was like felt so so genuinely upsetting because it's, you know, like it feels like a whole community gets sort of turned inside out by this inexplicable kind of kind of action. Yeah. I mean, this case tore the gay community apart, Mm -hmm. particularly the gay Mm -hmm. legal community. We actually didn't have a ton of time to go into it in the film, but there was it was hotly debated the East Coast and the West Coast among lesbian circles, gay circles, 
family law, because I think, you know, it was gay against gay, which made it unique in that it wasn't, you know, a a straight parent or it wasn't a, a gay parent, a straight couple that then one person came out as gay. Right. So the lines weren't clear. And it was a huge question at the time of like, what does a gay family look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can a community raise a child? Can you have multiple parents, you know, three parents, two sets of two parents? Or do gay families want to look like nuclear families yeah. in the sense of two parents and two kids and all of that? So I think it brought up, the particular case brought up a lot of larger issues and kind of growing pains that the gay community was going through in terms of parentage. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm so glad you said that about the creative choice to track your moms as characters in the first episode, because that seemed to me like such a triumphant structural choice and a almost a refusal to treat this story as its most sensational part and an insistence on going back and saying, no, this is who these two people were. And this is why it was so devastating when someone came to destroy their family was because, you know, just tracking for the listener who hasn't watched this, your parents are Robin Young and Sandy Russo. Russo goes by Russo. Robin goes by Robin. But this backstory that you go into with Russo's, you know, sort of peripatetic childhood where she didn't get to live with her biological mother until she was five and how much trauma and like abandonment fear would inform that bomb going off of the knock at the door like I thought that was such a strong artistic choice so I would love to I think the question I have about that is did you learn anything that you didn't know before in tracking like the characters that you built here or did your understanding of anything that you did already know evolve in any way? The My understanding of my mom's backstories and how they informed their actions in the trial was pretty clear to me prior to making the movie because I... Mm. I had been mm. living with all of that information for so long. The The learning part sort of came in the third part of the documentary. Interesting. The personal learning and the personal growth in terms of that end conversation with them. Sure. I mean, I think my knowledge of them and who they were as these kind of incredible people that had been through so much really felt critical. And it was just about putting it early on. And we were experimenting, you know, in the edit with like, well, how early and can we get it where it doesn't feel too loaded up? I mean, I think we should, though, to your point, actually, Laura, just go back and maybe I should just give like a recap of what the movie is for people, what the series is. I would love that. That would be great. Okay, cool. So so Nuclear Family is a three-part documentary series about my known sperm donor suing my lesbian moms when I was nine years old. It's about a lot more than that, but that is sort of the overarching thrust of the narrative. And then also how that event kind of has reverberated through my family for uh, the last 30 years since it happened. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You are obviously the best person to summarize this. What I would add is that the donor was suing for parental rights, you know, which was such an existential threat to your parents' rights. And as you were saying before, that he was a gay man and that some people could assume, in this case wrongfully, that a gay man would have a greater understanding of the sort of sanctity of this family. But as you said, this was like a lawsuit that pitted gay against gay. In fact, he was a civil rights lawyer. So wild. So wild. Yes. What you were saying, Rai, about like the the rupture this caused in the gay legal community makes a ton of sense to me. That's so wild. No, absolutely. I mean, but he was also like, uh, yes, not only was he 
gay, but he was also a pinnacle of the gay community and certainly the gay legal community in that he, he, one of his most famous cases was Peg's Place, where he defended lesbians who got beat up at a bar. Right. So he was like a man of the lesbians, you know, defender of civil rights, um, a pillar of his community. So there was a lot of, there's a lot of irony in that he then went on to sue mm-hmm. a lesbian family. And all of the reasons you just named are why he was part of your parents' loose social fabric to begin with, exactly. right? Like that's how they knew him. And I mean, as people who are sitting here in San Francisco, it was interesting to watch the sort of like coast to coast, New York to San Francisco, yeah. you know, dispute here, but also how the movie highlights that those were the places where there were gay communities developed enough that like parenthood could even be conceivable with community support like that seems highly relevant here and why they trusted him we should say you know because it what because the gay community was so renegade at the time it was a commitment based on trust they didn't write anything down because they knew that the law wouldn't protect them and if anything the law was scary to gay people at the time because it was the institution of patriarchy and it was an institution that did not have gay marriage and didn't respect those relationships right so to them it was like you are like us you are part of this renegade sort of under the radar community and that's why we're choosing you to be the donor yeah yeah i mean there's a kind of darkly funny in hindsight throwaway comment early in the documentary where someone says like well obviously we weren't going to go with the straight man because I forget what the exact reason is but you're like oh wow yeah that's um there's a lot of idealism uh there about you know about being part of the same project. And I guess that's the reason behind the loss that seems to be like given is things change, right? That's It's a kind of a story about how relationships evolve and what happens if you can't, if you, precisely if you don't write them down or if you don't make it clear. If someone wants to renegotiate, and that's kind of what this, what this was, right? To say, I feel differently about this child now, therefore I want the right to visit and to take you to family gatherings without your mothers. I mean, it's really kind of, the reason given was, right, things change, right? That seems to be the, the main... Well, that, I mean, you're diagnosed with a terminal illness, right? You're diagnosed with AIDS. Does that change your perception? Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, definitely. I think it, I think one of the things that's so interesting about this story is that depending on what perception you're looking at it from, everybody is in some way justified for some reason, but also has, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, but also certainly with him, the question is, if your feelings change, does that mean you, you're justified in your actions? Yeah. Yeah. We've been talking about really big conceptual things, and now I have an incredibly granular question. This is like deep nerd alert on this question. So one of the most like surprisingly moving moments in Nuclear Family to me was in the first episode as, as Robin and Russo are starting to conceive of the family they want to have and research how it might be possible to create this family. They come across a little pink pamphlet, like literally like a hand-drawn pen and ink pamphlet that I think they come across at like an independent bookstore in New York or San Francisco. The mission. In the mission. Yes, that's what it was. I knew there was a reason I was thinking of it. And somehow you, Rye, got your hands on either this exact pamphlet or a version of this pamphlet. So I want to know how you did. But before that... 
It just set off this series of chain reactions in my mind of thinking about how important small independent media has been to the creation of gay identities, right? Mm -hmm. Like, think of how many people in our generation didn't know there was a word for whatever they were until they went on Tumblr and found some hashtag or some post or whatever. And the, the pamphlet just felt like so paradigmatically the 1980s version of that, like, revelatory Tumblr post or whatever. So I'd love to hear you talk about, like, how did you rediscover that pamphlet? Was it the actual, pa- like, tell me about the pamphlet. I have been dying Okay, to I will. And it's a great story. I mean, I, that is the actual pamphlet, I should say. Wow. I had heard about this wow. pamphlet. I mean, it's a zine. It's like a zine, basically. Yeah. I had heard about it for years from my moms. And because the gay community was that small, they had had some dealings with the woman who had actually made the pamphlet herself. Like they had subletted an apartment from her. Of course they would. Like, of course they would. Exactly. In San Francisco years (laughs) later. And so they knew her name. And ironically, her name was Kathy Cade. Her last name was C-A-D-E, which is my sister's name. Oh, like your sister. I don't know if that's how my sister ended up getting her name, but her name was Kathy Cade. I searched for her. She still lives in Berkeley. I contacted her. She said, yes, I have it at my house. She has memory issues because she's elderly. So I had to call her many times and I had to tell her where to write it down. And we had a whole coordination. We had someone pick up the pamphlet at this also during the pandemic, had someone pick up the pamphlet, scan it and return it to her. And she was and we've since showed her the movie and she was just super lovely and amazing. And she had done it herself with her lover at the time because they were figuring out, I don't think she ever had children herself, but they were on the road of figuring it all out. And so they did it first for themselves. And just to be clear, again, for the listener, this was a pamphlet about how lesbian couples can achieve artificial insemination, like on their own without the intervention of a doctor. Completely. Wow, Kathy Cade, like shout out to Kathy Cade, man. What a heroine. And completely DIY with hand-drawn drawings. And it was literally showing a syringe without the needle that they load the sperm into, you know, the man ejaculates into a jar, they load the sperm with the syringe, and then they shoot it up there. Like it was that DIY, no doctors, no nothing, but also very simple. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. If people are picturing like some kind of medical pamphlet, this is basically like our crumb. It's like, it looks like an R crumb cartoon, uh, except even more explicit. Hand drawn. Yeah. I just, I loved that. There was something phenomenologically incredible to me about like rolling back the tape and being like, Rye Russo Young would not be here without that pamphlet. You know, these these pieces of small media have real lasting impacts. And like, you know, as someone who teaches writing, I just found that incredibly inspiring and like hopeful. <laughs> but it was just like, oh, the little the little pink pamphlet. It's such an amazing document. Totally agree. Yes. If there is ever like a museum about the the origins of the gay family, I feel like the pamphlet belongs in there. But so does, I mean, so does the, the film. Yes, totally. One of the things that I, I wish I had had time to really look into is, you know, ha- having gone through the process myself, it's interesting how much today you sign things that just say, even if I change my mind, uh, like this is this is what it is. And, uh, you know, for the judges of the future, FYI, this is what we're all entering into. Right. You know, if you you know meet with, for instance, a surrogate, one of the conversations you have is, right, is with a social worker who basically asks, like, are you likely to change your mind? And it's like, you know, and uh, watching the film is like, oh yeah, so this is, the path today looks different because of cases like this or maybe this specific case. 
Yeah, no, it's still, it's all still so young, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, as a, as an evolution of LGBTQ people having families. So then it was like, they were really the pioneers that paid yeah. the price. Yes. I think all of them. And when you have people doing things for the first time, it's going to yeah. be really messy. And yes, hopefully it will help implement laws. I mean, the irony is that like, you know, gay marriage came like 10 years later. Right. I find the prospect of discussing nuclear family uniquely complex because on one hand, I'm insistent to talk about your craft choices and not your life, you know, because you presented us with a movie and not a diary. And in addition to that, we are talking about a court case that had far reaching and profound legal and political implications. So we aren't only talking about an artistic journey, but just because I'm so reliant on artistic journeys, I just want to come back to the craft choices you made here. One of them was using reenacting actors in a way that felt thoroughly not Unsolved Mysteries cheesy. You know, like Unsolved Mysteries always looms so large as the sort of example of that. And this was so not that. I thought that these reenactments added so much to the vivacity of the film, like the lifelike Mm -hmm. quality, particularly in the scene where you're depicting the actual court case taking place and the character of Russo is standing on like an apple box trying to see through the window. Like that was so much more powerfully illustrated because it was illustrated. Can you just talk about your process of selecting and working with those actors and like how much of a mindfuck was that for you? And like, what was that like as a writer director? Totally. Well, first I should just say globally that I really, when I set out to make the documentary, I was really wary of making a documentary because I've made several fiction Mm -hmm. films prior to this and have done fiction TV directing. And I'm like a fiction filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And I realized at a certain point that this could only be a documentary or that it would, that the story would be best served in a documentary form. Yes. Not only because the real characters are so interesting and because I had all this footage, but also because my lack of understanding of the subject matter in some way Mm -hmm. was going to be a part of the journey and Mm -hmm. therefore a part Mm -hmm. of the documentary. Yeah. So, you know, the approach first was mainly using as much found footage and footage that I had shot over the years as possible. Of which there was plenty. (laughs) Tons, exactly. So I was like, I don't know if I need reenactments. And yes, reenactments are cheesy and awful. And have they ever been done well? You know, on a, I can count it on one hand when they've been done well. It's mm-hmm. very small. So, you know, another thing that was sort of the fear of making a documentary is I really didn't want to make a me and my problems documentary Yeah, that was going to be self-indulgent or that was why do we care? You know, there's a whole genre of that that I was terrified of doing. But ultimately, with the reenactments, what happened was is we edited it and we had put in um, temp sort of found footage, archival footage to illustrate those moments. And the truth is, is if the narrative is powerful enough, if the story is strong and the emotions are just potent, then the viewer will go along with it. And so even when we had crappy stock footage in there of like a woman standing on it, not even a woman standing on it, a close up of shoes on a stool, it was like we knew that that needed to Mm. be in there. And so then we'll like, what, what is going to serve this story? And so I kind of backed into needing those recreations because I couldn't find footage that was as good or was as strong as it could be. There's a bit of a wine glass that feels like you're just kind of flexing at that point. You're just saying like, this story is so emotionally involving that like even footage of totally. shattered glass, maybe the most 
mean, the most stock footage imaginable kind of really works emotionally at that moment because it's just like at the absolute like it's the more biggest gut punch in the in the series so like it, it makes perfect sense well it, it worked you know when it was really crappy footage but then ultimately it felt like well to really serve it and to do it even more justice let's shoot it and make it that much better right so then we had organized you know when the film was strung together and we knew exactly what shots we needed and i say we because i mean Paisy Holcomb and Ben Gold, mm-hmm. who were my two editors and real collaborators on all of this. Then we had like a four day shoot, basically, mm-hmm. where we shot all of the quote unquote reenactments. And that was totally bizarre. Casting a version of myself at nine, yeah. casting my, you know, my mom and what the physicality is mm-hmm. and all of that. But I really tried to use my, you know, narrative experience in terms of creating images that were going to be emotional and emblematic of the moments that were described without taking a viewer out of the story. That was really the challenge. Can I ask, um, when did you, so you mentioned, you know, the, the fact that this is kind of a change of approach for you. I mean, it's clear what made you want to make the movie, but what made you decide that then was the right time? I mean, I feel like you kind of gesture to it at the beginning of the film by having the very first shot be, I think it's the first conversation in the film where you basically, where your mom's kind of make fun of you for, for talking in the third person and trying to do a documentary thing. It's like, you mean you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Which, yeah. I, I took that to be kind of like, you know, the, the, at some point you have to have this conversation. At some point you want to make this movie. Um, what made it sort of be the right moment? What what made you say like, okay, let, let's let's do this? There were sort of two things. One, I mean, I'd been trying to make this movie for 20 years, literally, that for, for, for real. But what I thought I was making was different. You know, I was making a narrative film, then I was making a hybrid film. Ultimately, I think it was the birth of my children. I was, I had had one child and I was pregnant with my second when I realized that this was a documentary film and yeah that i was ready to make it and i think it was because i understood the stakes of the of the story mm-hmm. as a parent as a parent now which i just didn't you know until you have kids you don't really know how much yeah. they mean to you or how much your whole life is about them yeah sort of sure. for better and for worse and it was understanding God. that that allowed me to see the story from a much more um sophisticated perspective i think of course God, just thinking about, like, for lack of a better word to call it, that mama bear impulse that just takes me back to another one of what I thought was one of the most moving parts of the entire documentary, which was when uh, your parents' former friend Chris was describing how Russo would react if anybody showed up and tried to take her kids away and like conjuring this image of Russo like pointed at at the window with a shotgun like at federal agents like you're not taking my kids and then how you track that with <laughs> you know the rest of the building of Russo's character of, of this abandonment in childhood and and of course she's this ferocious like of course she's this fucking for anyway that is not a question so much as a word salad of something that I was profoundly moved by in your film thank you <laughs> I was really moved by that too i mean to me when they finally have when russo finally has Cade, it it does feel like this complete miracle of like she lived this life of darkness and oppression and finally she was she had the one thing she ever wanted in the world and it was the most beautiful wonderful thing Mm. i mean seeing my moms now with my grandkids is or their grandkids my children i'm like wow they are beautiful to watch
It's obvious just in the footage in the film that these are people who adore children, who seek out spend and not not even all parents are like that. You know, exactly. not all parents relish time with children and it's clear that like your parents do, you know. Right. And take so much joy in them. You know, totally. like, even my mom's with other people's kids. Like they'll spend 10 minutes with somebody's child and that child will be obsessed with them and they'll be obsessed with that kid. And not in a, not in a flip way, in a real way. They'll understand things about the child. Like, you know, Mima Spadola, who is the documentary filmmaker who made a documentary about my family yeah. uh, in 1999 on, that was on PBS mm. and she became a family friend. I mean, and just for context, that documentary was called Our House, a very a very real documentary about children with lesbian and gay parents. So mm. oh, that's great. anyway, you know, my mom spend an hour with her son Django and they're, and they're all in love. <laughs> the other thing that I, I thought about just now, when you said, you know, you've been wanting to make this for 20 years and there is this, you know, footage from the late 90s. In, in some ways, it's good that you waited until, you know, the streaming wars, because there is, there is a much less involving 90 minute version of this i think in there somewhere but it's wonderful that it has the space to breathe there is a there's something about the affordances of the of the streaming format yes. you know sometimes these things in, in hbo can feel you know padded but this one does not because precisely because it becomes really meaningful and interesting the moment we start understanding where everyone's coming from and that just takes so much time so in some way i'm kind of glad you you waited this long well I started making it when I started making it, I thought it was a documentary feature right. and that's what I set out to make. And then the rough cut was two and a half hours long okay. and everyone <laughs> yeah. was, and the producers were riveted. And I was like, I have no idea with what to cut. And if anything, I have things to add. Exactly. So, so what, what is great about this moment is that you can say, okay, well, if it's two and a half hours long, yeah. could it be episodes? And if so, what are they? And, and I was always thinking three acts. I just realized that each act needed to be an hour long and that the context, the historical context was yeah. inextricable from the story. You couldn't tell this story without understanding, you know, the struggles that gay people went through that even exist at the time. Completely. No, exactly. I mean, the act structure is absolutely is so apparent. If you know what's coming, you know exactly when it's going to land. And, you know, on the one hand, that makes it a little bit, you know, as as a avid TV watcher, you're like, oh, I think I, I see what's coming. I think that was my first experience sort of putting it together when I was watching it. At the same time, it also means that you are receptive for everything that leads up to it, right? You're not, it's not reduced to this kind of headline grabbing moment and you end up, yeah, I mean, we're coming back to the word messiness, but like you, you end up kind of spending time with the kind of odd beats. I mean, for, for instance, what that really I liked because it didn't necessarily go anywhere, but like it really felt to me like it was kind of resonant is people kept <laughs> mentioning how attractive both sperm donors were mm -hmm. and, and that one guy got kind of interviewed at Golden Gate Park but was found found too ugly <laughs> I was like ouch first off like imagine you're like watching this and you're like oh man that was me um, but anyway um, it, um, I like the fact that I was like I don't know what to do with that but it's an interesting moment and it 
got me thinking about like about kind of narcissism of men who've been told that they're gorgeous all their lives and what they think like, like it just you know and who knows maybe that doesn't go anywhere but i like the fact that the <laughs> film developed that mini theme and had time to develop that mini theme and your mind can sort of start making connections like maybe that's nothing maybe that's something and also that's the if only moment if they had chosen right. that guy that that's guy true. would probably not have sued you know yeah. there's a little bit of the luck of the draw of like yeah they thought they were choosing the perfect person. It was actually like a grand selection process. Right. But they chose absolutely in some ways the right person and absolutely the wrong person. Right. There's a... Yeah, it's funny because as you were talking, Adrian, I was like constructing the character of Tom Steele, the donor, in my head. And I was like, well, if we're talking about someone who had enough self-regard as a lawyer to go ahead and sue this family for parental rights... Then the fact that he was like good looking and known to be good looking might not be so irrelevant to that kind of narcissism. You know, like I can see the choice to add that touch about that character and how it adds evidence to the portrait of him, I guess. But also his appeal. I mean, I think he's so iconic. You know, Tom Steele is, right. I mean, his name is Tom Steele. He's a super emblematic of these like gorgeous, yeah. powerful <laughs> white men. Exactly. Who were... And and what was unique about him is that he was out, actually, yes, at the time. Yes, dude. In, in the early 80s, when many men were still in the closet, he was right. actually out about who he was yes. and did a lot of good in the world. And so he's, I mean, he's just a fascinating character in his duality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He is. And that that reminds me again of this, of this film's just incredibly admirable insistence on ambivalence. And... Uh, one of the sort of avatars of that ambivalence that you chose to include to my mind was this character of Chris Arguedas, like your parents' former friend. Did I pronounce that correctly? I don't think of it as ambivalence, though. Arguedas, yeah. No, but I don't think of it as ambivalence. I think of it as empathy, but that's sure. interesting that you think of it as ambivalence. So I'm curious about that. Well, that's a really good point. I think I was using ambivalence in a sort of journalistic sense, you know, because I think that this that the construction of this movie has some journalistic overtones in the research, in the sort of palimpsest quality of how much archival footage you were dealing with. I think empathy is a very good word for what you're describing. I think I was using... Am- well, you're talking about lack of judgment. Yeah, right? I, I, like, like yeah, an insistence right. on the both sides. You know, like you didn't just interview right. your parents about their version of this right. story. You interviewed other people about their versions of the story. And I think that is empathy. And I think that is what I meant by ambivalence. But I'm just really curious of what, like, what the process of talking to Chris was like for you. Like, how did the process of approaching her go? How did you feel during that interview? How did you feel watching that footage? Like, can you take us through that a little bit yeah absolutely um I realized pretty early on that I wanted to talk to her I was I knew that my moms would feel threatened by me talking to her yeah. at all so that was an intense element for in sure terms of talking to my moms okay I'm gonna go talk to Chris I'm not asking your permission but I'm telling you but I still respect that you have your own opinion right. and yeah. feelings and that's gonna kick up feelings of betrayal for you sure. and I want to hear those out because you're my primary subject, yes. but you're also my parents. I mean, it was thorny. Sure. And I had hives for two I had hives for two years while making this movie because it was just so emotionally stressful. Um, the hives are gone now, thank God. Mm-hmm. But talking to Chris, you know, I first met with her and I did a lot of listening. I said, I'm making this movie. I don't want to, I don't want it to just be one side of the story. Right you seem like the best person to tell Tom's side of the story on your own side. And I think I need you to make this movie with me if you're willing. 
And then I sat and I shut up and she talked for three hours and sort of told me, you know, all this stuff that basically kind of blew my mind at the time. And I said to her before, I said, can I film this first meeting? And she said, no, I'm not comfortable. I don't know if I want to be in the film. And I said, can I at least record it? Because I know my brain and I know that it will be too overwhelming that I won't be able to remember anything you said. Totally. So let me at least record the audio. I will never use the audio, you know, if you don't want me to, but it's just so that I can listen to it again. So I can even comprehend what you're telling me. Sure. And that's what happened. And then, and then she agreed to be in the movie sort of, you know, not that long after that. And I interviewed her twice for a really long time and it made me really uncomfortable Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And I had to, I had to fight my instinct to kind of say, well, that's not what is true. And to just listen and accept everything she was saying as true, Mm -hmm. whether I then would later believe it or not, certain elements, yes, certain elements, no, but just not fight it and just actually hear her. Which I think is such a powerful choice for the viewer and such an intelligent choice that I think requires real courage and, and like trust in the viewer to like present that perspective and trust the viewer to make their own sort of conclusions. For context, we're talking about Chris because Chris is the person who introduced your parents to the donor and thus provided a pretty crucial link in this story. And she was also someone who was socially involved at the time that like your parents were more in social contact with the two donors. Yeah, I just I I could tell from the way Chris was talking mm. to you, or I, I I shouldn't say I could tell. I inferred from the way Chris was talking to you that she had some things to get off her chest, you know, and that there were things that she had wanted to say to you that the severance and the relationships had made impossible. Was that your sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What she said to me in the very beginning was, "I've been wanting to talk to you for thirty years." And I can imagine. I thought that you were going to come to me when you were 18. I've, I've been waiting for you to come and find me basically. And I thought you were going to come when you were 18. I can't believe kind of what took you so long was basically what she said to me, but here you are at last. And I'm glad you finally found me. And wow. Her friend Annie said, apparently they had had this conversation earlier and Annie was involved in friends of my mom's and the whole thing. Um, and he said, if Rai is an artist, she'll come and find you someday because she's going to question her her life and her reality. Yeah. And in some ways they were right. And yeah. Well, that gets back to this palimpsest quality that, that I'm calling that I love about this film of like, this is a story, as you say, that you have not only been trying to tell in this form for 20 years, but have been telling in different forms pretty much continuously for that entire time, you know, and I, I loved the flashbacks to, you know, the sort of experimental short films you were making in high school and college and how all of those sort of touch on this story. Like Adrian already asked why now, but I'm just really curious, like how did that palimpsest quality feel to you? Like how was it to go through all of these different versions of the story and try to feel your way towards the one that felt most current and accurate and complete? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. I mean, it was it, it was really rewarding ultimately because it was this thing of like, why yeah. have I spent my whole life filming those around me? And myself and telling the story 8,000 times. And it kind of felt like, oh, this is why. Because it was a struggle to understand this trauma, basically. Yeah. And it was a repetition of the narrative over time that allowed me to get perspective on it. 
And that's always what I've loved about filmmaking is that when you film something, when you sit back and you look at it and you are watching it, you have a new perspective on it, on the events that you just filmed. So there is nothing. So all of this filmmaking was an effort to actually have that perspective. And ultimately it was like a diamond where I could kind of assemble or mosaic really is a better, you know, I could take Mm -hmm, all of mm -hmm. these different pieces that I had been exploring over time and kind of put them together to see the larger truth and image. Totally. And what the movie just hovers upon without beating you over the head with it in a way that I found so graceful is that like when you roll the tape back to Rai Russo Young as a filmmaker, this guy is there with the camera at the very beginning, right? Like these sort of filmmaking exercises that you were undertaking in childhood, Tom was the one who was inviting you into those. So to me, that offered a really inevitable quality to the film in a way that was like, well, of course this has to be a film and not a novel and not, you know, not a painting. Like it has to be a film. This is in some ways an answer to your own origins. Did it feel that way? Uh, Yeah, a little bit. It did feel like everything I had been doing had been leading up to this moment. Yeah. And it is, I mean, I think good films, like when you write a narrative film, what you want is it to feel both surprising and inevitable. Yes. And I think the, the story had that quality here. Um, and it, and it yes. had that quality because it was, it was truthful in a sense. Yes. <laughs> now that you've, now that this, this is out there in the world, has it changed any of the relationships? Has it mended anything? Has it reactivated some things? How has the existence of this film as an object in the world transformed that world? Well, Mm. I should say the one thing that's been really on the exterior side of it, it's been really rewarding to hear people's responses to the film because it's Mm. so many different forms of families have responded, be it gay families or children of immigrants like there's just been a lot of different or people with unusual situations they have a roommate that overstepped like it is a story that invites people to think about their own life and relationships and family histories that's right which to me is like the reason that you make a movie like this it's not it's to tell your story yeah but it's really to get other audience members to start to kind of invite them to think about their own relationships so that's been really rewarding You know, ironically, it's brought, maybe not ironically, it's brought my moms and I even closer Mm. because I am just reminded more than anything of how ephemeral this life is. And that we're just in, you know, enough time. I mean, I think like the the meta character in the movie or the the biggest character of all is time. Yeah. And just, just the cycle of life of it all of our relationships mm. and, and how you, how your mother is parented and then how she parents you as a result of that damage and love that she received. And then how you parent your own children, how your children will parent their children. It's just this endless kind of yeah. um, little cycle of life, love and damage. And so, uh, <laughs> so it has made us appreciate, I think, you know, as my moms are getting older, like uh, had me really appreciate that relationship with them and my own children. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I should say, like, there are members of Tom's family that I've been in contact with more so now. Like, I just met one of his sisters for the first time, Mary. So it's mm-hmm. opened up those relationships on that end. Not in a floodgate sense, but in like a, right. a cautious kind of kind dialogue, mm-hmm. which I'm open to and have enjoyed. So, yeah, so it's it's bridged. I think it's just continued to grow my relationships in my world. Well, deepen the ones that are existing. 
I, I love what you say about that meta character of time. It actually just invited a new dimension to the viewing of the movie that I didn't think about before, which is I thought a lot as Adrian asked you of the like, you know, the why you of this film is very obvious, but the why now was something I was wondering about. And I wondered about your own motherhood in relation to that. But this meta character of time invites a consideration of how, you know, Tom's terminal illness was a really crucial turning point in this story and in his actions and and how aggressive they were in certain ways. But when I think of you as the filmmaker and sort of central character in this story, it, it occurs to me that part of the motivation for doing it now is to do it while your mothers are still living and can be a part of it, you know, and like you couldn't shoot this 20 or you could have, but it would have been a very different movie if you had made it 20 years from now and couldn't interview them directly. Absolutely. And people like Chris and Nancy and, you know, yes, people are only going to get less sharp with time. I mean, Milton was not Milton Tom's lover could not be in the film because he has Alzheimer's. You know, mm. would it have been a stronger film with him in it? Probably, but I wasn't ready to make it then, so it wouldn't have been a stronger film. But, you know, mm -hmm. so yeah, I think I think this was actually also on the time front, the last moment yeah. where I could do this, where people would be as lucid as they are. Which feels like such an important note about just like gay history in this country in general of like this generation of pioneers is aging and it's important that we honor them yeah. while we can. Like that, that feels really urgent. My whole life, I kept waiting for someone. I kept waiting for the movie or the the novel or the story of the children, the experiences of what it was like right. to be a child of gay parents to mm -hmm. come out. Mm -hmm. You know, when there were bits and spurts, like I took part and Gabrielle Harmon did like a great photo book of like sort of little narratives of different children, LGBTQ kids. The kids are all right. My whole family saw that in a movie theater. But these were like huge moments for us, you know? Sure. But I was like, where's the more like, where's the the messier version of what these kids went through? And so finally I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to do that. <laughs> Wasn't that casual, but. We're so glad you did. Thank you for doing so. <laughs> Thank you for watching. <laughs> oh my God. Twice. Twice, right? I want to watch it again tonight, I think. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I might. I mean, I'm already recommending it to everyone I know um, and will continue to do so. But but we can do that on our own time because you've been so generous with yours and I want to be mindful of it. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Rye. Thank you for having me and for engaging so deeply with the film and its themes. This has been really wonderful. Really appreciate it. Both of you. No, really, really big, big thank you. The pleasure Absolutely is amazing. ours. Yeah, and uh, any of our listeners who haven't seen the movie yet uh, the run don't walk uh, really it's on hbo nuclear family is the name of the docuseries and Rai, does everyone like end interviews now by being like give your moms a hug from us because <laughs> like that's definitely how i'm feeling at this moment <laughs> The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the institute named for a woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty, 
and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by the Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.